This morning, you and I have the great privilege to hear the Word of God. It's our tradition to hold the Scripture in high regard. Every now and then, the Lord causes someone to cross your path uh, with whom there's just a really tremendous kindred spirit, and you can tell relatively uh, well from the beginning that, that the Lord has blessed you with interaction with that person, and that has held to be true in my life with Eric Puentes for the last seven, eight years. Eric and I first met some time back, and uh, Eric and I began to spend a substantial amount of time together, and it's been nothing but absolute joy to interact with him. It's always been a deep passion for God's glory, a willingness to challenge one another from the scripture, to be honest with each other, to speak the truth in love. And so Eric has been a real constant in my life in that way for the last many years. And as you know, uh, Eric is in seminary in his second year. He's being trained. He's faithful to the scripture. And he's uh, part of his training, of course, is to preach the word of God. That's, you know, part of being a pastor have to know how to do that. And so it's our joy this morning to hear him bring the word of God to us. So this morning, you and I will be fed well. Eric, would you come? Well, before I begin, I, I wanted to tell you what a great privilege and honor it is to um, be able to open up the scriptures with you, to preach to you, to sit under them with you as well. Um, God is truly kind um, to be gracious to me. Um, be able to participate with you in this. Um, so if you would, let's go to the scripture. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verses 9 through 12. That's the text of our sermon, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. So turn your attention with me to, to these verses. Now is to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, that we urge you, brethren, to excel, excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your own hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. I once heard a story about a young man who was in his first year of college, and so he registered for his classes, and uh, it was the first day. He was excited about it, and as he walked into one of his first classes that day on the campus, he overheard some of the students whispering about how they had heard how hard and uncompassionate this professor was that they were about to sit under for that semester. At this point, the young man had second thoughts about whether he wanted to take this class. If you've uh, gone to college, you know that you can add or drop a class within a period of time. And so he thought, maybe I should drop this class. Well, he decides to stick it out. He wants to see if, if he can do this. And he's actually captivated by this professor's teaching. This professor's asking the class questions that he had never thought about himself. But he does find out that part of what the class was whispering about beforehand is true. This man is uncompromising, and he's deadly serious about the subject matter. As the semester rolls on, the young man struggle, struggles to keep up 
And right before the midterm, com- midterm comes about, which is halfway through the semester, it's, a, it's you know, half your grade, the midterm, he sees a professor drop something as he walks out of class. He's curious. He goes and he picks it up, and this stack of papers that he's holding is the professor's midterm. So he's, um, he's faced with a choice now, and he, and he tries to actually run the professor down, and, and he can't catch up with him. He can't turn back the midterm, and so now he's deciding, what am I going to do with this midterm? You see, as the one, on the one hand, he can easily pass the ethics class. This was the class he was in. It's ethics. He can pass the ethics class by uh, cheating. And obviously you laughed, you know, he can pass the ethics class by cheating. It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. How can he pass an ethics class by cheating? Well, you and I know that you can pass a class academically, you can pass it intellectually, and it goes for any subject matter, but that means that he would have failed the class personally and practically. In practice, he would have failed. He wouldn't be an ethical person by cheating on the ethics exam. So you see the paradox here. This is like saying we can become better cooks by buying TV dinners, or we can become better students by handing in someone else's work, or we can overcome sin by sinning. It doesn't make sense. We would call this hypocrisy. See, ethics is more than just an exercise of knowledge or the intellect. It's what we ought to do. It is our integrity. Our moral character before God and men would be called our biblical ethic. So can we do the same thing that this young man did? Can we affirm mentally what someone else ought to do or even what we ought to do and yet fail to do it practically ourselves? What what good is it if we affirm the commands that God has given us if we fail to practice them in our own lives? What about our attitude towards the church? Can we do this in the church? Do we love the church in word only and not in deed? You see, what we call the gospel, that's the good news, is intensely practical. And that's my aim here is to show you how practical it is, to show you what Paul thought about how practical it is. So God has given us through the scriptures, through this text, a biblical ethic. That is how we ought to live in relationship to God and in relationship to his people and in relationship to all men. Now listen to James. This is kind of prime the pump here for us. In James 2.15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and any one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? I would hardly call this just a lack of compassion. Jesus indicts the Pharisees in the first century for this type of behavior and tells us in Matthew 23 to observe what they tell you, but do not do the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay on them and lay on the people's shoulders, lay them on the people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Do all their deeds. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. The Apostle Paul himself was a demonstration to the church at Thessalonica that intense practical living was totally tied to God's love. He he proves this throughout the first and second letters to the Thessalonians. He brought to them the gospel. He came to them preaching the gospel, we read in Acts 17. And then he supported himself while he preached the gospel. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he writes, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil... We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. 
He did not despise that he had to be a lowly tent maker in order to provide a good witness to the Thessalonians by providing for himself. As a laborer in God's vineyard, he was entitled to wages. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But Paul denied this right. He denied uh, being supported while he was preaching the gospel. He did this for the good of God's kingdom, and he did it for the good of the Thessalonians. His life reflected his ambition to not just to love the Thessalonians in word, but to love them in all ways, not just by mentally assenting to the gospel, but by demonstrating the gospel with his very life. So how can we, in a practical way, demonstrate our love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we avoid the hypocrisy of knowing and confessing what we ought to do, but failing to act rightly and serve one another? What are some practical ways that we can do this? How can we demonstrate the love of God in the gospel toward one another? So here, and for you note takers, this is going to be the outline. For here, Paul gives us three truths about what it means to excel in love. Now, here, here's going to be the outline. Here's a roadmap. In these three truths, we find three ways to practically demonstrate that love. And then there's two purposes that we end with or that he ends with for that intense demonstration of that love. So there's three truths, and within those three truths, there's three ways that we practically demonstrate the love of God, and then there's two purposes for that love. So follow me here. There is no doubt that the Thessalonians church, uh, the Thessalonian church was genuine. It was an on-fire church. In fact, Paul records in the first chapter that they had become imitators of him as they received the word in much affliction. Just read in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and, and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, which is the region of Greece that they were in. And in eager anticipation of Christ's return, Paul encourages them in chapter 4 to continue in their sanctification, for this is the will of God. So this is the context that verses 9 through 12 comes after. So read along with me. I'll read it out loud, uh, starting in chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because it is the Lord because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So before we can discuss the practical uh, actions that Paul encourages them to and, str and strive for, we must first discuss the source of these actions. And this is the first point. There's a pivotal truth revealed to us by God that becomes the central motive of love toward God and love toward the brethren. This is the first point. God teaches us to love. We excel in love because God has taught us to love. Look at, with me at verse 9. 
Now as to the love of the brethren. So he just finished talking to them about their sanctification. Now he says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you love you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So Paul specifically says that God has taught us to love one another. We are literally God taught to love one another. And this is only one word in the original language, taught by God. And in Matthew 22, verses uh, 36 through 40, um, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, what is the great commandment? And the lawyer is trying to trip him up. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we've been commanded by God to love one another. One another. That's from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. But God does not give us this command without providing for us the means by which to obey the command. So thereby, God teaches us actually, he actually teaches us to love one another. In the Old Testament, it's predicted that God will do this. You don't have to turn there with me, but in Isaiah, it, uh, it reads in uh, chapter 54, verse 13, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus echoes this. When he cites Isaiah in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Apostle John unfolds us further in his first letter to the church in chapter 2. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and, it, and, it is, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The very presence of God in his spirit is the anointing that teaches us to love one another. In fact, John assures us in chapter 4 of his letter that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the very basis of our practice of love toward one another. If you do not know God, you cannot love. And that might sound very radical to you. You might know unbelievers who do not know God who you think, wow, they really seem to love people. And let me repeat it again. I'll answer the question, that dilemma. Anyone who does not know God does not and cannot truly love because God is love. You cannot love God or others rightly without a proper knowledge of God. And this happens when you are born again by the Holy Spirit. Then you are brought into the new covenant, as we believers call it. We call it the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 34, the prophet talks about this. He says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And this, so this word that, that Paul uses to say you are taught by God to love one another is very similar to the word that Timothy uses in 2 Timothy 3.16, talking about the inspiration of the scriptures. He says the scriptures are God-breathed. That's also one word that Paul uses. Now he's saying you are taught by God. So by God's indwelling spirit, who inspired the scriptures, we have been enabled as believers to obey his command 
as he teaches us to love one another. If you're not convinced that we could not love one another without God's teaching us to love one another by his indwelling presence, listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This reminds me a little bit of when my dad was trying to teach me how to work on cars. Um, the first thing he did, I said, Dad, I want to turn wrenches. I saw him working on cars. He threw a book in front of me and said, read. And I wasn't excited about that. I wanted to get my hands on. And I realize now that I needed to understand the principles of how cars worked. But I just couldn't do it alone. I couldn't do that just by myself. Then he taught me how those principles applied. He taught me how they worked. And it's a, it's a very similar thing the way the Holy Spirit teaches us what he is inspired in the word. We can look at the word, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't understand these spiritual things. We need the spirit to teach us these things. And this is exactly what God has done. He's enabled us to love one another by teaching us what the scriptures truly mean. But what does it look like to excel in this kind of God-taught love? Well, let's look. This is what Paul is urging us to do. The second truth is that we excel in love by practicing what God has taught us. Look at verse 10 through 11. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are, all in, who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So how do we practically demonstrate this love in action indeed? So Paul lays out these three practical loving actions for us to obey in order to demonstrate this more fully, this God-taught love. The first way we practically demonstrate this God-taught love is by striving to live quietly. Look at verse 11 now. So we excel still more, look at verse 11, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. First we note that Paul characterizes the rest of these actions, all these actions, by the ambition to carry them out. One commentator says the verb literally means to make it a point of honor to be fired with ambition to strive eagerly or to endeavor earnestly after. Does quiet living mean that we shouldn't laugh loud or raise our voice? I mean, that would probably disqualify half of us from the room, disqualify me. No, Paul is speaking to our disposition toward life, a life toward others, a, a, a life that lives in a godly and dignified way. We can find the same phrasing of this exhortation found in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And he, he's actually more explicit and explains a little bit more about what he means in the second letter. It seems as though he needed to explain it again with more detail to the Thessalonians. But he says in his second letter, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He encourages uh, a young pastor in the first century church, Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly, and dignified in every way. Now, do we often connect the idea of how we live our individual lives and connect that to how we love one another? I don't think we do. I think we, we privatize our individual lives and we, we, we compartmentalize them and think that it's not an expression of how we love other people. Does our life demonstrate one of composure and patience toward trusting in God's promises, the Lord's promises, trusting in his timing? See, there are some that lead a life full of controversy rather than striving to lead a quiet life. Many Christian, per- so-called, you know, I'll put it in quotes, Christian personalities on television are not ambitious for quiet living. They're not other-centered about it either. They're ambitious for self-exalting, controversy-creating, media-publicized living. And that's easy to do in our day and age with Twitter and Facebook. We can publicize ourselves very easily. Some of us also live sensationalized lives. We tend to talk more about our godliness than actually being godly. We tend to talk more about our quiet times rather than being quiet. Can we get caught up in these controversies, albeit, you know, political controversy, social, commercial? Can we get caught up in these things that do not promote godliness or promote the gospel? Now, some of those things we have to talk about, but do we do it in such a way that promotes the gospel? Is it your ambition uh, for quiet-centered or a quietness that's centered on the faithfulness of God and what he is teaching you? Do you lead a self-focused, attention-seeking life? Is it your ambition to be seen by others that you may receive honor from others? The prophet Isaiah writes, For as thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. Again, Lamentations, or the writer of Lamentations tells us, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So we know that quiet, composed living is completely countercultural to our society. But Paul says that this is the kind of living that actually loves people and loves God's people, that is the church. Living a quiet, godly, and dignified way demonstrates love for the brethren. Let's look at the second way we can practically love one another. The second way that we can demonstrate this God-taught love is by striving to manage our own affairs. How many of you are ambitious to manage the affairs of others? No one wants to raise their hand. I didn't think I'd see any hands raised. So we know, I don't think there's any illustrations needed. You know, I read some of the Puritans, and after they finish explaining something, they say, you know how to apply it. (laughs) And there's no illustration needed here. We know that it is not right for us to be ambitious to manage someone else's affairs. Not unless you're a financial manager, I guess, but they've given you permission to do that. But by managing our own affairs, it is a great benefit to the church. The qualifications for church leaders are contingent upon their ability to manage their own affairs, to manage their own households. So when Timothy's speaking to the elders of the, um, sorry, when Paul is speaking to about elders to young Timothy, he says, he must manage his own household well. This is the qualification for an elder. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive, and if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Likewise, Paul 
is talking about deacons in that same context. He says, let deacons each be a husband to one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So we should take this to heart as well. This is not just for deacons or for overseers. We're all called to that same standard, as we'll see. But first, let's notice that there's a reverse correlation when we don't manage our own affairs. There's a reverse effect. In effect, when we stop managing our own affairs, we begin to meddle in the lives of others. We talk about their work, at work ethic, or we think about it, their relationships with God, or relationship with God, their families, their spiritual life, their eating habits, their marriages, their strengths, their weaknesses, and the list goes on. Paul addresses this issue again in his second letter to the Thessalonians, showing the correlation. 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And in this first letter to Timothy, he urges young widows to remarry, lest they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So if we're honest, when we examine our lives, there, there is no shortage of improvements that we can make concerning our own weaknesses and how we spend our time, especially in our homes. And I'm guilty of this as well. I think about myself and, and go, man, if I had to live this text out perfectly, I wouldn't be able to, to preach. None of us can really do that. By God's enablement, we can become more godly and sanctified in these areas, but none of us have a lock on it, not until Christ returns and we are raised to new life. But let's be honest, even though we can't do this perfectly, there are those in the church that are our brothers and sisters who are content to neglect their own affairs to point fingers in the lives, to point their fingers in the lives of others, and that's hypocrisy. They live unexamined lives and yet examine the lives of others. The Bible calls them what they are, busybodies. Paul warns Timothy that this gives the adversary an occasion for slander, especially in the eyes of outsiders who do not know Christ. They see us doing this toward one another. It dishonors Christ. How many of you are familiar with um, TV soap operas? Maybe you don't want to raise your hand on that one either. There's no shortage of people interfering with other people's lives in soap operas. On the co that's, how they, that's how they get you. It's that controversy that uh, a society likes. On the contrary, these shows are full of people that are preoccupied and consumed with criticizing, gossiping, changing, and even destroying the, the lives of others. What kind of lives do they actually lead? Well, no one's happy in a soap opera. They live sad, unexamined, wasted, miserable lives the only with only fleeting superficial joys, usually at the expense of others. And where I come from, um, they call that being a hater. And so I'll give you a little bit of, um, you know, um, I don't know, contextualization, I guess we could call it. You know, um, They call that being a hater. That means you're envious of someone else. This type of behavior does not glorify Christ by loving the brethren. First, it is not love toward the brethren, but gossip and slander. It's a critical look at others without self-examination. It's a work of pride, not a mark of humility. It's not being ambitious to manage your own affairs. It's arrogant and selfish and is in no way 
an act of excelling in love or a demonstration of excelling in the love of Christ. In fact, it is unloving and it leads toward more godliness. But in contrast to this, leading a disciplined life frees us to love others better. If we confess Jesus is Lord, let us walk in the light as he is in the light and examine ourselves and confess our sins to one another so that we may be qualified to give humble, and, uh, humble correction and rebuke to one another. Not because we're perfect or else none of us can do that, but because we agree with God's word about sin and about repentance. So we must remember to live quietly while managing our own affairs first. Now let me give you the third way. This is the third demonstration of how we, we practically demonstrate God's love. And it, it is being ambitious to work with our own hands. Now I'm going to ask you another question. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you admire people who are able to work yet refuse to? So these are basic truths, basic things that we know are wrong, you know, intuitively. We know it in our heart when we're here, we hear that question. No one does. Paul himself was no stranger to this type of mentality. He warned the Thessalonians against idleness in his second letter again. In uh, chapter 3, verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any one of you. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And in Ephesians 4.28, Paul says again, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We can go back even further than the New Testament to talk about work or working with your own hands. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The entrance of sin is what made work unpleasurable. Work is ingrained in the very image of God that we bear. It's God's image. God worked six days and rested on the seventh. Now we need to understand that there are instances when we must rely on others to live, and it's humble to do so. There are instances when we must rely on others, and it's humble to do so. We must not fall into the error of work's performance and take pride in what God has enabled us to do. But we must be ambitious to work with our own hands. Laziness is not an option. You see, our culture, it's much, it's much like the Greek culture of Paul's day. Work, especially manual labor, was seen as degrading and beneath those with some type of status. How many of you, if it came down to it, would work at McDonald's to take care of your business, to provide a, a means of financial stability? That is to manage your own affairs and to provide for your family. This is what is considered undignified work in our culture, and it's not undignified. The Christian work ethic is different. If we look at Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us, whatever you do, that includes everything, whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whether the work was undignified, Paul writes to Timothy, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now you can draw out these connections. I mean, we had an economy that you know, took a dive a few years ago, and we're still recovering from it. 
But in the midst of that, when jobs were scarce, maybe you did lose your job. And those are hard things to go through as a family. But were you ambitious to work? Are you still ambitious to work? Um, you know, where I live, um, I pass by the Home Depot, and I see, I see immigrants on the side of the road that are wanting to work that day. And it reminds me of their ambition to work. They want to provide for their family. Regardless of how you feel about that, I, I, I think it's a good illustration of how, how someone will go out in the middle of the morning and want to provide for their family. And, and that's an honorable thing to do. It's not degrading. It's, um, it, it's, fa- it's faithfulness. And if they're believers, it's faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul indicates that our ambition to work with our own hands demonstrates that we're excelling in love toward the brethren. To be able to provide and serve others with our work, be it toward provision for our families or even being hospitable toward a guest or even instructing others in the word, um, that's demonstrating God, uh, God-centered and other-centered love. It's not self-centered love. The economy of Christ church is enriched by believers who worship and love one another through labor and through work. This is not dishonorable and it's not optional. So, so far, we have seen that God has taught us to love one another. One of the promises of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the New Testament. We are not only able, but divinely taught to love by God's Spirit and to excel in this type of love. When we looked at some practical ways that we can demonstrate this love, well, I'm sorry, then we looked at some practical ways that we can demonstrate this love toward one another. To be sure, this list is not exhaustive. I don't think Paul meant it to be. But this particular text is quite clear that ambition for quiet living, managing one's own affairs, and working with one's own hands are interconnected actions that demonstrate our love for the church and our love for the brethren. So if you are quietly laboring to manage your household and work with your own hands, you are excelling in brotherly love. This is our last point now. So we talked about um, the two previous points that we are taught by God to love and to love the brethren more specifically, and then that there's three practical ways that we can express this love, and in fact, we should express this love if we've been taught by God. Now, here's the third point. We're called to excel in this love more and more, and there's two specific purposes for that. So we're called to, uh, to excel in love more and more for two purposes. First purpose. We are taught by God to love and encouraged to practice this demonstration of love so that we may walk honorably before unbelievers. We will and do have a reputation before unbelievers. The question is, is it a good reputation or is it a bad reputation? What kind of reputation does the Anchor Bible Church have toward unbelievers that you know based on your um, adherence or your, your ambition Um, to demonstrate God's love within these principles that we've talked about. Do we have a reputation of being honorable and just and responsible and hardworking, thereby showing Christ to be a kind, powerful, faithful, and righteous king? Or are we seen as lazy, meddling hypocrites that criticize others and are self-deluded? Our actions should reflect righteousness and biblically biblically, um, ethical behavior. We should behave decently. That's the way the the New American Standard puts it. We should behave decently or honorably before outsiders. 
And Colossians 4, 5 tells us and calls us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So this, this purpose has a major effect or results and implications in our, in our places of work, our neighborhoods, our unsaved family members, any places that they're unbelievers, um, they're watching. They're watching our lives, and sometimes they're watching our lives with a microscope. Employers of Christians should be blessed with honest, diligent, uh, an honest, diligent, uh, hardworking employee that does their work with excellence and aims to serve and help others. Let me read you a quote from Matt Perman. Christians are to be the opposite of vandals and slackers in their work. We are to do work that will truly benefit people by going the extra mile rather than just doing the minimum necessary. Excellence in our work is actually a form of generosity and love. Uh, and poor quality is a form of stinginess and selfishness. Shoddy work is not just shoddy work. It's a failure of love. And as consumers, I think we can understand this. When we buy something we, that we worked really hard to pay for and it breaks, um, or it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not usable, it, it wasn't designed well, it was shoddy and it breaks, um, that's not a love um, the, the person who designed it and the person who sold it wasn't loving the people that they were selling it to. Unbelievers should be admiring the gospel through its manifestation in our lives. One commentator says, non-Christians must not be given a pretext for thinking that Christians are unprofitable members of society. The church could not discharge its ministry of witness and reconciliation in the world unless its members adorned the gospel with their lives as well as proclaiming it with their lips. So through our practice of excelling in uh, the love of God or being taught by God to love, we should be a witness to righteousness, integrity, service, faithfulness, and all of this toward outsiders, that is, toward unbelievers. Through our practice, we may even win admiration from others to the glory of our king and master. Let's look at the second purpose. And I'm going to start in verse 10 and read all the way through verse 12. For indeed... You practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that, and these are the purposes, you will behave properly toward outsiders and the second purpose and not be in any need. So the second purpose of our love is that Christian brothers and sisters will not have any need. We won't have any need. If we live responsibly toward one another as God has designed us to and intended us to, then some, well, no one will suffer need. This is the way it was in the early church. They were laboring, managing, and generously giving. Luke records in Acts 2.45 that Christians were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And again in, in Acts 4, verses 34 through 35, there was not a needy person among them for as many were owners of land and houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Indeed, this even harkens back again to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 15. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need 
whatever it may be. You see, our hard work enables us to support ourselves and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So you, you probably remember how I opened up with um, the illustration of the young man who went to college and was faced with the dilemma of passing um, his ethics exam by cheating on it, by cheating on his ethics exam. You and I can do something very similar um, if we do not come to God and confess and be transparent about our shortcomings, about our own trying to pass the ethics exam, and we can't do it. The Bible says that none are righteous, no, not one. None seeks after God. None of us can pass the ethics exam. The Pharisees tried to pass the ethics exam by tithing mint and dill and, uh, and, and neglecting weightier matters of the law, which is compassion and mercy and service. And so we should be wary of doing the same thing. If we look back over this text, we can see that God taught love to Christians is intensely practical. Now, since we can't do this, who can? This is the ultimate ethical practice of love. Love toward God and love toward others. The, uh, obeying the, the two great commandments that Jesus talked about. There can be no hypocrisy in this ethic, for there can be no hypocrisy in love. It's always other-centered and always seeks their good. Do we do that? Do we always seek the good of, of uh, Christ's church? Popular thinking these days says that we can't do it. That love is, in fact, it has a, a false definition of love. That, that love is expressed by making others feel good. And that's not biblical love. Love has no tinge of self-interest, but aspires to move quietly without being noticed. It's not about making other people feel good so they can make you feel good. That's manipulation, and that's selfishness. And there's no, there's no self-interest in love. We're urged to excel still more by learning what God uh, divine teaching has taught us by living quietly, managing our, fair, our own affairs, and working. But even the source of this love does not come from within us, but is taught to us by God's Holy Spirit. And God himself demonstrated this by organizing and designing his very plan for the redemption of our souls and our bodies. An even clearer demonstration of excelling love is seen in Christ himself. You see, the Father initiated his own love for us before time began as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ practically accomplished our salvation by demonstrating his humble and quiet trust in the Father. He demonstrated love for us, his brothers and sisters, by redeeming us from sin and death. He did this by managing his own affairs while he served others. He did this by laboring and working so that we might be given the provision of righteousness that will save our souls. He lived a righteous life before God. He loved God with all his being, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He obeyed God. He labored in teaching, healing, and in his prayers, that as he headed to the cross as a sacrifice that appeased God's wrath and served as a substitute for all who would trust in him, God raised him from the dead, thereby accomplishing our resurrection as well. He, see, the gospel is intensely practical, and Christ demonstrated himself. God, the whole Trinity, demonstrated this, this love that seeks others and seeks the glory of God. He came to outsiders separated from God. That was all of us. And walked honorably 
and ultimately served us by giving his life for us that we might be reconciled to a holy God through his holy broken body. That even though we're sinners who deserve to be eternally separated from God and from his presence, he reconciled us to him. And if you remember in Matthew 4, Satan tested him. Satan tried to give him that exam that he might be able to cheat. If you remember Matthew 4, he tempted him to bypass the Father's will that he would give him the kingdom and the world. This is called pragmatism. It's a means to an end. But that wasn't Christ's mission. And Christ didn't accept the bait. It would have brought no glory to God and would have left humanity lost in their sins and damned to hell for all eternity. His love was self-giving and self and, and other-centered. Romans 5.8 tells us, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was a man who practiced his ethics. He practiced true love, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If he did not open the way to reconciliation to God through his death, then we would not know the power of his resurrection, a power that gives us eternal life. He loved us not according to what we wanted, but according to our good. So let's be like our Savior. One counselor encourages us to love one another generously and accurately. That means according to God's word and as taught by God's spirit. I pray that your love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Intelligently, intelligent love is a gift of God and a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is the love that God teaches his people. And if you're with us today and you have not experienced the love of God, that you have not come to trust the Savior and come to God and been transparent with him and agreed with God about your sin, then do that today. Be reconciled to God. Confess your sins before him. Repent of your sins. Agree with him and trust in the broken body of our Savior and in his resurrected life. He is the man, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So I plead with you, be reconciled to God and know this love. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word and um, for your kindness toward us that not only have you revealed to us in your scripture the truth, but you have also moved on us by the power of your Holy Spirit to believe on it. Please enable all of us here, as some of us were outsiders and some of us may be outsiders, to trust on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be reconciled to you through his body and in his resurrection. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.